0: Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Salas. And with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend, who is my very own Lady Liberty, the Mixtress DC Gina. (laughs)
1: Lady
0: Liberty. Yeah. I feel like the green giant. I don't
1: know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but...
0: You are a giant amongst many.
1: Yeah. She's a, she's a leggy broad in the, in the Hudson. So I'm into
0: her. <laughs> she's leggy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when I say the wall and immigrants in the same sentence, I would imagine you probably envision some kind of barrier that runs along the South, the, our Southern border. No?
1: Yeah. Well, it's all you hear about was Trump's wall. So yes. Yep. Yeah.
0: But did you know there's another American wall that actually plays tribute to, instead of bringing shame upon, the word immigrant. And that's the American Immigrant Wall of Honor, which stands just outside the Great Hall at Ellis Island um, National Museum of Immigration. There are over 775,000 names inscribed across 770 stainless steel panels, and they form a semicircle, and it faces New, the New York's lower Manhattan skyline. Now, an interesting thing about this, not all the immigrants who have been memorialized on this wall actually disembarked at Ellis Island. Truth is, anyone can honor their family heritage and recognize the adversity and hardship that many of their family members faced. So you can pay a mere $150, to have your family name inscribed, and all the money raised um, goes to fund the foundation's mission to restore and preserve the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. Now, there's something I have to admit, Gina, and don't give me the stink eye. All the times I have been in New York, I have never been to the Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, you definitely. All the yeah, time. Well, you definitely didn't grow up there because that's definitely something we did. But my great-grandparents came to Ellis Island, so my Aunt Teresa was the youngest of 10. And um, it was a big honor for my Finelli family to have their plaque at Ellis Island. So
0: we all went. Oh, cool, cool. So you, your, your family name is on on the wall. That's yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And then we
1: went to Flushing for food. So there you go.
0: Because <laughs> that's cause that's what we like to
1: eat. So there you there you have it.
0: <laughs> so when you were a kid, did they put you on the ferry every year, or like was it a, a like a Circle Line? A t- typical. Get it correct. Oh, the Circle Line. Yes.
1: <laughs> what what does what what is that? The Circle Line is the name of the ferry that goes to Ellis Island and to. Uh, gotcha
0: yeah see told you I, I i know not i know not so i have to correct that i know so let's go to new york go get go to fleshings get some food and then we'll do the we'll do i'll the put whole a thing, cocktail yeah?
1: together we could drink it on the boat oh awesome yeah it's illegal but it i'm totally like a, okay with that
0: yeah it sounds like a, t- a perfect day for you and i yeah so let's get this show going right so all this talk about honoring your family heritage brings me to today's designated drinker he is a chef owner door extraordinaire he is danny lee welcome to the show danny hi danny
2: hey how are you thanks for having me
0: thanks for coming thanks for coming so let's start off on the right foot get this show going in the right direction will you please tell our listeners about your restaurants and how all this started
2: for you sure yeah so we opened up um Mandu, uh, which means dumpling in Korean in 2006 with my uh, mother and sister. Uh, my mom's always been a phenomenal uh, home cook and chef ever since I was growing up. She had like little delis. Um, and then later on, when I was in high school, she franchised a local um, Chinese restaurant uh, through Charlie Chain was a local, prominent local Chinese restaurateur. Uh, he won a bid to have a storefront in the national airport when that new kind of wing opened up in 1997 so my mom basically was running a chinese takeaway in the airport for 10 years but through that experience she started cooking some korean food and putting it on the menu and even though it doesn't seem you know that long ago this is before korean food kind of exploded in the states and you know you didn't see kimchi and safeway or gochujang and like the hair's teeter you know so it was a uh, an experiment almost with us to see how people would react to having Korean food, um, and the airport's almost the perfect test base for that because you have people from all walks of life traveling through those halls, and people were coming up. We're doing bulgogi bowls, and people are like, "What is this? You know, like, what is this exotic meat?" I'm like dude, it's shaved ribeye with, you know, soy and sugar and some garlic. And it's into it, you know, it looking crazy. But you know, they read the name, they're just like, bulgogi, and like, oh, bulgogi, but, you know. Just, like, it's uh, but that gave us the idea of, you know, possibly opening up our own restaurant in the district, because back then there wasn't any, there weren't any um, full-service, you know, Korean restaurants in in the city. So, uh, in 2006, our lease ran up, and we made the family decision to open up Mandu, um, uh, in between DuPont and Morgan on 18th Street. Four years later, we opened up a second mandu down in the Mount Vernon, China White area of D.C., close to Chinatown. And then I partnered with one of my best friends and one of the chefs I respected the most in the city, Scott Juno, um, who has dedicated his life to cooking Chinese cuisine. So he and I uh, formed together to open up Chico, which stands for Chinese Korean. Um, the first one opened up in July of 2017. It's more of a fast, casual restaurant where half the menu is our takes, our fun takes on Chinese and Korean cuisine, where they kind of split the menu down in half. Um, not really fusion, you know, there's basically 50% of the menu is dedicated to the Chinese side, 50% dedicated to the Korean side. And within those genres, we kind of tweak things to put our own spins on the dishes. And what's funny, well, I don't know if it's funny, but the same day we opened up that first Chaiko, the original Mandu, like my baby, you know, my family's first restaurant caught on fire and burned down. That's which crazy one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life is to literally open up a new venture while your first restaurant, your first business is like smoldering, you know? So, And uh, not in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. Terrible. So we had to make a really quick decision to see if we wanted to either walk away from space or work out a deal with a new landlord and use, you know, the insurance process to rebuild, which we decided to do. Um, So it took two years, but uh, that restaurant is now called Anju. So... Um, with the Chico locations, we now have uh, four. Um, we have three in the DMV area and one in San Diego, and then uh, now we have Anju as well. Um, and then I still have the Mandu downtown.
0: So when that um, when you lost the first restaurant and you reopened under under a new name, did you change the concept much?
2: Yeah. So uh, first of all, it gave us an opportunity to do some remodeling that we thought we were going to do anyway. So there's nothing like a fire where it destroys everything where you can kind of start anew. Um, <laughs> and I had played around with the concept of Anju actually at Mandu several years ago, where we hosted this uh, monthly event where we invited some, like you know, my good friends who cooked around the city to cook with me late night to do um, kind of like a fun experimental Korean, you know, pop-up and, um, which kind of builds teams. So ever since then, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to open up a concept called Anju. So Anju literally translates to food meant to be consumed while drinking alcohol. So we wanted to be very bar heavy, but also we wanted to be very creative and not be held down by the notions of authenticity or tradition, you know, which Mandu very much is. Um, and I think there's a need for both, you know, in any ethnic cuisine in the States, I think there's a need to have restaurants that are paying homage and tribute to the historical traditions of the cuisine and stay true to them and try to do the best versions of, of those beautiful dishes. But then on the flip side, there's also a need for restaurants that take that cuisine and progress and modernize it, you know, um, to different levels and, and explore different possibilities of that cuisine, you know, but all in all, it's still Korean. You know what I do, even though Anjou's known to be a little bit more modern progressive, it's not like it's Korean American or modern Korean, it's still a very much a Korean restaurant.
0: It's kind of funny how that becomes almost a taboo, maybe because there were so many bad versions of that. But I always find it really interesting when very traditional food takes on this new twist and it just feels so creative. And again, I, to your point, it doesn't it doesn't mean you're abandoning um, old traditions. You're just introducing it in a new way. I think that's that's awesome.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially with European cuisines, you know, a lot of, most people don't have a problem if you see, you know, nouveau French cuisine or, you know, a modernized, you know, Italian restaurant. Um, But for some reason with Asian food, anytime a chef tries to not even recreate the wheel, but, you know, just explore different avenues of that cuisine, then they're immediately labeled, you know, fusion or, you know, Americanizing or westernizing that cuisine, and I'm very much against
0: that. You know, it's, that, that, that. when you were when talking about that, makes me think. You know, when I lived in Hawaii, you would Asian food. What fusion is the wrong way it, it to describe it because it's different because it's in the islands and you have different influences and it's mm-hmm. years and years in the make. But no one thinks it's less than it's it's um, you know the the food the Pacific room food just takes on its own space. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also a culture that is mostly Asian. Um, uh population so you do get a great mix
2: yeah i was just in maui three weeks ago nice um yeah and it was uh amazing you know driving around and tasting exactly how you just described you know kind of the combination of several cultures you know um kind of combining together to create this own kind of novel cuisine it's amazing
0: absolutely absolutely did you make it over to maui brewing while you were there
2: no, um, we, we had a pretty packed schedule, but also, you know, the first vacation we've taken in 16 months. So honestly, there are days where I just wanted to do nothing besides drink a pina colada next to the pool.
1: So Exactly. Um. <laughs> it looks beautiful. Trust me, I saw those pictures. I was like, good for you. <laughs> you deserve it. There's a lot a lot of pivoting during um, COVID. And, yeah. And also because of that came a little pop-up that you did, right? You haven't talked about that. That's still go an ongoing pop-up out of your store. I egg you. Oh,
2: Yo, Fred, uh, Chico Capitol Hill. So Scott, um, you know, always had this idea in his head of doing a breakfast concept where it's very simple. You know, find really good bread, um, you know, griddled very nicely, uh, perfectly cooked fried egg, seasoned, and then your choice of protein, you know. And so we tried to be as local as possible. So my family is friends with um, – uh, a couple that runs a Korean bakery in Andale called O bread. Uh, and they're an amazing, amazing Korean pastry shop, but they make delicious Korean style milk bread or milk loaves. So we actually get our bread through them. Um, and that actually is 50% of our successors because the bread's so good. Um, we partner with Logan sausage for our sausage meat. Um, we do local specials where we've worked with, you know, local smoke houses to get brisket. Um, you know, we'll do a crowd special during the season, you know, once what's coming up. Um, but it's been um, something where we thought would only be, you know, two to four weeks where we're just testing it out. And we're going on several months now um, and just keep on building and building where, you know, we might have a concept out of that. Um, you know, people are calling for for more. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, it's definitely been uh, eye opening for us. But, yeah, you know, we appreciate all the support for it. It exploded.
0: Yeah, it's great. Do both of you think because you're both in the profession, do you think that, you know, there's hard to say it's hard to say anything was positive because of the pandemic. But do you think that um, the pandemic kind of opened that door to allow you or maybe even forced you through maybe to take risks and find new concepts and test them?
2: I, I think it it caused every restaurant owner, manager, chef, whoever cause everyone to be as creative as possible to survive. So it wasn't like, Oh, you know, this is an opportunity for us to have fun and, you know, try this out. It was, it was literally, yeah. What can we do within our spaces that can not just generate as much revenue as possible, keep as many people employed as possible. Yeah. Right. Um, it, so really was, you know, I don't want to sound dramatic here, but, uh, yeah. survival.
0: That's why I, I was wondering if it was like a force through the door kind of thing. Sorry, I, I,
1: No, I don't think there's anything dramatic no. about what you said. It was survival. Like, I, like in a million years, nobody knew a restaurant relief fund was going to come or all that stuff. And, you know, I think you have families to feed and not just your own, but you know, people that work for you and they have kids and this is their main source of income. And to think that you would just close and then like leave everybody like, Oh, you know, sorry. That's not, that wasn't, I think that wasn't an option. And I commend, um, like, the reason why I wanted Danny so badly to come on the show is because of all of the things that they've done. And the fact that they, you know, talk about it, like they, you know, pivoted, they opened, they slowly opened, they had their pickup, they had to go, they did it safely, they started IAGU. And now, you know, Danny is, I believe, becoming one of the biggest voices. For to stop all the Asian um hate crime and violence, which I feel is disgusting. But, you know, you talk about survival of um you know COVID and all of that, and everything that's happened to the Capitol. We're all in Washington, DC. And everything you did every day made a difference on your bottom line. And what I buy bottom line is I'm not talking about like I bought a car at the end of the year. I mean like we were still in the red, but we made it and we could get to the next year. Do you know what I mean? And like we, and thank God for our loyal customers because who knows, you know, who knows what would have happened. But anyway, I'm not going to get, oh, that's a whole other episode. It's very dark. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's the would case, you- then I got to get the scotch out and then we got to talk about it with scotch <laughs> and change the episode.
0: <laughs> but you did okay. touch on something that I'd, I'd love to go down. And that is, so you're right, Danny is, when you said, let's bring him on the show. Of course, I do some research and he's all over the Internet. all over the media about Danny, about some talk about you like you're not here uh, uh, t- about. And I quote, it's you are, you have vowed to be relentless in your fight against racism. Can you please tell our listeners a little bit more about that and especially about your em- embrace race, embrace race? Easy for me to say.
2: Yeah. So. um First of all, I want to say that the racism that's being talked about right now against the Asian American community isn't something new. Uh, This is something that we've been dealing with ever since we've been in the country, way since before I was born. And the unfortunate thing is that, you know, it took COVID uh, to really highlight um, these issues. Um, and to bring them to light. And it further emboldened a lot of people who were in the shadows and held these thoughts to their own household or in their own heads. They were further emboldened to come out and be very vocal against the Asian community for several reasons. And, you know, I think throughout the pandemic, you know, um, early on, you know, in last May, you had the george slope protests, you know and especially in dc you know that was a major turning point in this city you know let alone the country and you know we tried to be at least my wife and i tried to be as um supportive and as part of it as possible so we could really feel what was going on so we went down to uh black lives matter plaza you know almost every day we, we brought down ppe we actually made fried rice out of mandu one day um, so people could pick up, you know, some nourishment on the way and just like eat it there because there wasn't a lot of food, op- there weren't a lot of food options there. Um, but I feel like, you know, being part of the community um, in the city, you know, you, you really need to sometimes go out there and be in the middle of it to really experience what's happening in your community. And again, throughout that time period, the attacks against Asian Americans simultaneously started to increase and you know, uh, there, were, there were times where I felt helpless and I felt very depressed and very sad about what was happening to our community and it also caused me time to self-reflect and think back onto my childhood up until now of all the microaggressions that I faced, you know, living in a very, you know, white world. And what I was saddened by was a lot of the, Silence that was happening, you know, first from like the mainstream media where you would see these attacks happening, but no one knew about it. So, you know, you, you, you would only know about it if you followed sites like Next Shark, which is like an Asian-American based news source. Um, so myself and, you know, a lot of other Asian-Americans started to repost those things to their followers because there were a lot of people who had no idea. And every time we did, you would get so many messages from people being like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. When did this happen or how could this happen? like this has been happening for a year, you know, like at least for a year in terms of the violent attacks. again, racism has been happening forever, but in terms of these kind of bolder violent attacks, um, you know, strictly racial, racially based attacks, right for quite some time, but no one was talking about it. So we felt it was our duty to speak up for ourselves because if our own community didn't speak up for, you know, ourselves in terms of this issue, Who's going to exactly you know um, it starts with us, and so I, I decided to use whatever platforms I had to raise awareness number one so that people with new rules and issues to keep the conversation going. And then number two, I thought it was also equally important to realize that yes, there is a highlight um, or there was a highlight on uh, racism against Asian Americans. that by no means that racist means that racism stopped against every other community you know yeah. like for some reason people are like, oh well. Now racism took a turn from being racist against African-Americans. Now it's only Asian, you know, it is always affecting everyone. Yeah. And what I, I would go down these dangerous rabbit holes on the internet where I would see a lot of like fringe groups from all sides for every different community kind of blaming each other. Right. Finger pointing kind of playing the blame game. And, um, I then thought it was really important to try to promote interracial solidarity, um, so that we could unify and, and show strength through our diversity, embrace our diversity, right? And help each other out, learn from each other so that we could combat the ultimate enemy, which is racism and honestly, white supremacy in this country. And some of the systemic sy- biases and systems that have been ingrained in our society to help other people realize what this problem is and how we can move forward. So I found this group called Embrace Race, um, which is a wonderful organization. Um, Founded by uh, a couple, Melissa um, and Andrew, and their whole mission is to fight racism by providing tools to parents, teachers, educators, counselors to teach young children on anti-bias and anti-racist, you know, issues. Um, you know, through education, they feel like they can really shape you know, the next leaders of our society, you know, and I'm I'm a firm believer in that. And it's not just for one community, not just for Asians, not just for Asian-Americans, not just for Latinos, it is as a whole, right? And I thought that was very important to showcase that. So we put together a dinner at Anju um, with a very diverse uh, lineup of talented chefs. Um, And we, in one night, raised $20,000 from Race Race. And then through there, a lot of other chefs and a lot of other restaurant groups, started doing their own initiatives, donating to Embrace Race as well. Um, I actually was in California for work at the San Diego Chico, and uh, there's a group out there that did a four-week-long series um, benefiting Embrace Race as well. So again, it's been been weird, you know, uh, being this vocal about it, but I think that also ties into The whole concept of being Asian American especially for my generation in this country is we were we were raised not to be vocal we were raised to be docile and to acclimate in society and keep our heads down and study and become a lawyer and doctor and just you know be a contributing member to society in our own quiet way right and what I now know is that we were programmed to do that so that to feed into the model minority men you know and that's why I continue to be vocal, which is why I said I'll be relentless, is in the hopes that if I can inspire, you know, a fellow Asian American, or even non-Asian, right, to to be vocal and to stand up for us, right? To stand up for these issues, to acknowledge that we have problems and to, you know, use whatever methods they possibly have in their arsenal to, to combat racism you know I find that to be a win absolutely um, but but even now you know like when I went out to San Diego for that dinner um, that was on a Tuesday night so I flew out Monday so literally I was in town for four hours and then I was outside of a bar with a friend who happened to be Korean American as well and I'm in San Diego which is known to be a very liberal you know Southern California city and I got called this guy walked through the parking. and I was like what are two Japs doing outside my bar and studying in his bar and we're like what? It was especially like a bold, like abrasive comment to make. And also, first of all, wrong term. Second of all, <laughs> that's like a term that you haven't, seen since you saw like a black and white documentary of World yeah. War II, yeah. you know? Um, And then it, he was, uh, he's like, oh, I'm just like, you know, I'm just screwing with you guys. It's like, well, that's a weird way to introduce yourself. You know? And he's like, oh, I used to do business in Japan and Korea. And I was like, oh my God, here we go. And he, cause he follows that statement up with, what the rest of you flat face people. <gasps> like, oh my God, man. You know? So apparently he's, like, known, like, locally to be, you know... uh, Abrasive. An abrasive person. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he got kicked out of the bar, and actually he's been kind of banned from that bar and from several other restaurants after this happened. Um, Which, you know, I applaud, you know, the local restaurant and bar bar association there for doing that. But I told that story the next night at, you know, the dinner we were doing. And I stopped telling the story because I saw the audience. Members like mouths kind of drop open, like they're shocked that, that could happen in their town. You know, sounds like the amount of surprise faces I see here means that there's a problem.
0: Absolutely, you know?
2: it means that you mean that you think your your community is immune to this, and this is why we're doing this dinner. This is why I am advocating you know, as much as I am, so that there's no way for us to progress as society if, as a society, we don't identify the problems that we have. Right? We don't acknowledge that there is a problem in the first place. And that is why I'm being vocal. is for us to realize that there is a problem, so that once that acknowledgement happens, we can together come up with a solution.
0: You, you mentioned something early on in that when you were talking about um, about being taught to be more docile, being taught not to talk mm-hmm. about it. Um, my father was Mexican came to the my grandparents made the states when he was three it's like 100 years ago very different united states but my father would never talk about it because then it showed weakness in his mind so you never acknowledged and it was crazy because he would be like well that doesn't happen to me meaning himself although and and he would almost deny that racism although he was incredibly racist himself Uh, (laughs) but he would deny that there not deny it's just that would not admit that those things happen because we would have these arguments. I was that daughter that challenged it all. And I would say, well, you know, they say those same things about us. And he's like, Oh no, they don't say that about Tony Mendoza or his children. And I'm like, uh, yeah, they do. <laughs> you know, it was that, sure. it was that denial that my, it, that my father, um, that was his rule. You just, you never admit it because then it's, then it was showing a sign of weakness, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I think that's,
2: the, that's, that's the other part of this is that, You know a lot of um asian americans you know from my generation think that showing vulnerability is a bad trait right like asking for help is wrong um and we're at the point right now where as a community we need to ask for as much help as we can get and it's okay to ask for that it's okay to show vulnerability it's okay to show that we're not well and not just with what's happening now. I think in general, you know, I, I think it's there's been a societal change where it is fine to say that you are not okay, right, yeah. and that you need help. And you know, the more we can, as a society, embrace that, you know, notion, um, you know, I think we can go a long way, not just racism, but for mental health issues, you know, um, etc.
0: I think that you also mentioned. It. I don't the enemy here is not another person. It's, it's a mindset. It's racism itself. It's hatred itself. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a, that's a major hurdle, but you're right. It's going to take all of us to acknowledge uh, and uh, understand and be uh, empathetic to each plight.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I don't have the answers, you know, the amount of calls and messages I get from people, right. Uh, Honestly, a lot of white people, Sorry. Um and you know, kind of my <laughs> no no no, no you you're not one of them. Uh but you know, fellow restaurant owners or you know, managers or leaders or whoever that will literally ask me, um, how do I end racism? I'm just like, Oh my god, what what kind of question is that? Like if I had that answer, I would win a Nobel Peace Prize, you know? Where, like oh, that it- is that is that is a ridiculous question or they're like, you know, how do I stop the hate? I'm just like, you, you can't, you know, but we can make progress. And, the, and what I tell everyone is have, it starts with direct conversations, right? Have these uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable conversations with your staff, right? Um, have these on conversations with like, you know, the, your inner circle um, and bring it up and force them to acknowledge, you know, that there are problems in our society.
0: I know? think it's also just starting and, with yourself too, realizing where you're, because we all have them. We all have prejudiceness against certain mm-hmm. things and things that you can't control or things. There are things that and I think the conversation first starts with just within yourself to realize where is, where is, where is that within you? Um,
2: but there are a lot of, pe- there are a lot of people who for some reason or another do not want to self-reflect and realize that it's they hard. might, might have systemic bias right yeah. within them. And they're like, oh well, you know, I have friends of all races. I mean, they're not racist or I'm not prejudiced, right? Yeah. Like that's a very dangerous stuff. Is that, you know, systemic racism doesn't mean that, you know, that everyone in society is going on like, you know, calling each other racial slurs every day. You know, systemic racism is something that's ingrained in our society. It's ingrained in how you walk down the sidewalk, right? It is ingrained how you move or not move out of the way when someone's approaching you, you know? Right. Like there's simple things like that in your everyday life that you don't realize are a product of yep. bias, you know, and that's what we need to realize.
0: Glad it's not a big deal. <laughs>
1: yeah, no. I'm raising two kids, and I, and I think about that a lot because I grew up in New York, and I grew up in a very mixed community, and wasn't wasn't quite like that where I grew up, you know. And you know, I think about <clears throat> where my aunt lived in Flushing, and. You know, I told you my family immigrated here from um, Italy. You know, you, I saw, you saw a lot in New York growing up as a kid. And I try very hard now to make sure I point out things to my children. And I said, that's not right. You don't do that. And and Black Lives Matter and and all of that. They were like, they didn't understand like what that meant. And I really tried to explain to them that, you know, they're like, all lives matter, Mom. And you know what I said to her? I was like, what we are trying to say is that you need to appreciate that Black lives need to be heard. And talking about, and one of the things, Danny, that like gets to me the most is how do we, and and I'm not saying you, you have the answer, but raising your children and giving them the respect of culture is a big way, at least what I'm, at least what I'm, my parents raised me to respect people's culture was a big way to take down the walls of what being racist is because understanding culture and what people come from is a big hurdle. And at least in my family, that's how it was. And I'm trying very, very hard for my children to not see it that way you know, I want them to see it as embrace how beautiful it can be, embrace all of the people that are around you, you know, and not just like, you know, for for one reason or another, but I get nervous sometimes thinking like, you know, maybe I don't understand enough, you know what I mean? So I read more or I listen to my friends or I see what you're doing, or I see what my my friends are doing for African-Americans and Black Lives Matter and different groups and, I try to learn from them, but I think with um, embrace race that you're doing the schools, and I don't know how to do that, but to get younger kids together is the only way we're ever going to see it like start to dissipate in some time frame because it took some of the beginning of time to now to build, so it'll take time for it to 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 dissipate, yeah. but. I don't, you know, I wish there was a way to have a pointer and say, you know, you have to suck it up and you're going to have to listen to this conversation and you're going to have to do it and you're going to have to find your way in order to teach. Like all these mothers have children and, you know, unfortunately in parts of our country and our city that we live in now and everything, you know, people don't think the way that we think. And I kind of like I want you. I want you. I want. I want Embrace <laughs> Race to like really follow up with that. Like go to the schools and like, how do I put them in the school here where I live? You know, and you know what does that mean? Is there a material? Is there a class that we could teach online for kids? So they they begin to understand each other because I, I just it's so easy for them to fall into wherever they are. And it doesn't matter if you live in an all-black community or an all-Asian community or an all-white community. It's very easy to to listen to what your parents are doing or saying. So is the school a good way to try to eliminate some of that that you may be hearing at home?
2: It is a good way, but you know what, and and that it is a it is very idealistic for us to think that you know, pu- the public school system was one like of these changes. I mean, for years, the African-American community has been trying to push for more inclusion to school classes, right? And, and just in public schools in general to spend more time talking about the history of African-Americans and some of the atrocities that happened to their community through slavery, right? Um, and civil rights movement up until now. And instead of just having like a two-page thing being like, oh, slavery happened, but then it ended, we're good now, you know? Yeah. Like, it it is such a false narrative that's taught in schools, and I don't think it is anything progressive or left-leaning or whatever to to include that factual history in our schools, right? But the fact that it isn't is a problem. And the fact that there are so many parents that rebel against the thought of that being taught to their children in their schools signifies a huge problem in our society, right? And that's what I'm saying. It's not it's 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 something that we cannot fix tomorrow, you know? But if we can keep the conversation going and keep the debate going where we're putting things into simpler terms that aren't polarizing, but honestly just explaining on a commonsensical level why this is wrong and and the the culture this breeds, you know. I, I think that's where we can make a dent. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's a very polarizing issue, obviously, and it's very divisive. And if, it's, if you're using anger to combat anger, it's only going to get worse, you know. So I think it's time to switch the conversation and be smart about it and say, okay, how do we actually break through some of these people's barriers, right, where we can actually get to their heads and make them think?
0: I think it's interesting when you talked about sharing culture and and it's it's racism isn't white against any other color it's throughout all races and all cultures unfortunately or as I see it is so anyway um, but I think when you start introducing knowing people like even is as, as simple as I'm sure in for kids when you're teaching them cuisine or different traditions and learning different cultural um behaviors and tendencies I think what that does is it Starts to break down the barrier, especially in children, because they just learn these are just other people. They're just Mm -hmm. people that have, um, Different ways. And it's as a, ch- and a child is just a sponge. They, and, and instead of filling them with hate, you're filling them with understanding and appreciation for another culture. I think that, and, and it's not at a space that it has to be empathetic or it, it's more of just a absolute, uh, absorption, an absolute absorption space where they're just really being exposed to new things. And there's no reason to be sorry because they're just learning and they're mm-hmm. just learning about new yeah. things. Um, that's, that for me is very promising. Let's have a drink. Let's do it. Yeah,
1: let's- Can
2: we
0: have a drink? I feel like I need a drink. I'm getting
1: like, I don't know. I'm like on the verge of tears for some reason and I don't really know why. Um,
2: I feel like I'm gonna really screw this up, Gina.
1: No, it's so easy. It's the easiest drink ever. Um, all right, so so we're gonna make a cocktail and I'm in and I have to tell you, I I have the privilege of knowing Danny, but um, I wanted to make a drink that was kind of uh, something that you would sip and uh, enjoy, and it had many layers. And for me, bourbon or whiskey is something that has many layers, and champagne. And I think um, the cocktail was very kind of thought out for you because it it has um, you know something that's you know the bourbon in it, which is like a really rich and um, lovely thing, and then it has champagne, which means to lighten it up. And I call it the soulful because. I really feel like, um, Danny, I feel like that what you're doing is all from the insides. So I I made this cocktail for you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's silly. I I don't normally do that. I normally have some sort of cocktail I wanna make, but like, I really thought about you and like what I, I don't know, what I kinda envisioned for what this would taste like. If it was a way I could describe what you've been doing over the last um, time. So I hope you enjoy it or or you hate it. I don't know, but we're going to make it. So here we go. So we're going to use one ounce of Maker's Maker's Market. We're going to put this in our blender. And if you don't have a blender at home, no problem. You could definitely just um, shake this over in a shaker tin, shake it over ice, and then you'll pour the champagne after. And then we're going to use one ounce of ginger syrup. Oh, sorry. Three quarters of an ounce of ginger syrup. And we are going to do three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. And I know that if you listen to the show, obviously, fresh is best. Take the time. Squeeze the lemon. Please don't buy lemon juice from aisle five in a yellow container. Okay? So, we're going to squeeze that in. There's a big lemon today.
2: Those are so gross.
1: What? The big lemons? or Oh, the plastic the, ones? The,
2: the lemon. Yeah. Those and the lime ones are so bad.
1: Yeah. You want to know it's really embarrassing? They're called Cecilia. So, it's like from Sicily. And it's just, it's just so sad to me. Anyway. All right, so we have all that in there and now you're gonna take your champagne, you're gonna pour that in and you're gonna pour about three to four ounces. And I wanted to say this is um, a really another alternative. If you wanna make a lighter uh, cocktail where you wanna have happy alcohol, you could definitely use soda water in there as well or seltzer. Then you're gonna use um, that one cup, uh, one and a half cups of ice and then we're just gonna put it on top of our blender and we're gonna blend. And what you're looking for is a nice loose consistency so it's a pourable drink. And if, if it's not able to pour out of the blender, then you might need to add a little bit more um, alcohol to loosen it up. Nothing wrong with that. I'll always add a little bit more alcohol, but you know, let's blend. So let me see your consistency.
0: What do you got, please, did you blend today? Oh, I think, I'm, I think I'm good this time, Gina.
2: Oh, mine, I definitely needed more ice. Let me see.
0: No, let me see yours, Danny.
2: No, I need more ice.
0: Yeah, I probably needed more ice, too. I think I put too much champagne in mine. Okay, just a little bit. So you want to do about like a cup and a half. Cup. Gotcha.
1: Ah, that's okay. You know what it is? You can't measure the champagne. It's kind of like an eyeball thing, right? But you
0: know, this, st- this still tastes Sorry. delicious, though.
1: Listen, that's all it means is you got to make a drink for somebody else. Just add a little bit more ice. So um, you're going to garnish this with a little a sprig of mint. And um, if you're lucky enough and like maybe you have a, a grocer that has verbena or you have a verbena tree or your neighbor has a verbena plant and you can steal a little <laughs> uh, verbena with this is also really lovely. And I wanted to put some of the flowers on it. My verbena was flowering this morning. How pretty. So oh, I there thought, we go. Yeah, so I just kind of put that on there. Um, and verbena and mint, all of that's kind of in the same um, family. So, you know, it's just really there for the nose. Because the nose knows. You need to put a little floater of the Angostura bitters on the outside. And Danny just did it, and I did follow-
2: not. I follow the recipe, Chef. Sorry,
1: you follow the recipe way better than I do. So we're going to add our um, our Ango around the side. It's gonna give you a little bit of the bitter with the aromatics and the um, mint, and it should be good to go. So there we go.
2: Oh, that is delicious. You like it? Oh, that's really refreshing.
1: You can get brain freeze though, frozen champagne. Yeah. My favorite thing to do is um, just dump champagne into a, like a frozen machine for a party with like a little bit of lemon, and um, you know, or orange juice doesn't matter. And you freeze it. It's so good. But uh, I'm not so happy you like it, Danny. I was like, I want to make a drink.
2: Oh, that is no, that is that is very very refreshing, especially you know it's a bit warm, so uh, this is definitely cooling me down. Yeah, welcome you know.
0: to DC Summers. Yep. DC Summers.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I have a question for you. Since you're sh- uh, chefs, um, I have herbs that are are blooming, just like your yours, Gina. Can you cook with those, or should you just can you or should you? Trim them and just put them back in the dirt. Uh, depends on what
1: it is. But if you have basil, you need to deadhead it and take the basil flowers, the leaf, um seeds off, because otherwise your um, your plant's gonna die. Because once it makes its seeds, you that's all that's what it's intended to do. And then and then it makes the um, basil really woody. Gotcha. So if you pinch them before that time, they'll just keep producing. So. Nice. I don't know about all the herbs. Gotcha. What were we gonna say, Danny?
2: I was gonna say if you, you know, if you're worried about waste, right? Because you do need to, you know, trim your plants and, and and pick them so that your plants remain healthy and continue to grow. Um, you might have, instances where you are left with a ton of extra herbs, there are definitely different ways to preserve them so you can use them for later. You know, you can dry them um, and then turn them into a powder. You know, and use them for different seasonings. Um, I would. You know, you can buy their food dehydrators now that are very affordable. They can buy all over the internet uh, where you can dehydrate herbs. And again, that's another way to uh, enhance certain dishes where you can reconstitute it when you're doing a saute, for instance, right? And you can have dried basil or dried oregano or whatever um, that will enhance the dish or a cocktail. Or a
1: cocktail. <laughs> oh, Danny, I'll be dropping Good. off a lot of things to you to make some powders. I hope that you're excited. <laughs> <laughs> Because in like one more week, it's time to go and take off all the potato um, flowers off the potatoes. And I didn't realize when I planted a row of potatoes, just how many plants that was. So oh. <laughs> yeah, I have a giant garden now and I put in a whole bunch of stuff and I, it's way too much. And it's a lot of things we don't actually eat. So it's going to be fun. So I'll be handing things away to people like, oh, I
0: hope you enjoy <laughs> all of this eggplant. See, Jean, I just thought you were inviting Danny and I up for a big Sunday dinner. Oh, no, I'm going to bring it to you. Oh, yeah, you can offer me that, too. <laughs> but I'll be like, oh, take all of this home. <laughs> all right. It's time for going. you to do some barkeeping.
1: Yes, it is. So if you want your tips, tricks, or how-tos um, for the cocktails, you go to Designated Drinkers on Show, and we'll be sure to include... Um, how to get to Danny's restaurants. And again, it's Chico, Anju, and Mandu, as well as his pop-up, I Egg You, um, his Capitol Capitol Hill location. And then, of course, how to contribute to Embrace Race will be there. And um, any dinners that will be up and coming, Danny, please share with us so we can post.
0: And any way that you want us to um, get the word out what's going on.
2: Yeah, we'll do.
0: And then also... You'll also be able to check out our um, episode notes to get all that same information. Links will be right there for you. The other thing we'll make sure we put there is Gina's home address. So when she makes us that big Sunday dinner, all of our listeners can join us. (laughs) That's awesome. You want to drive here? Everyone can come here.
1: I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) All right. So there's one last question for you, and this is a fun question. So this is how we know if you listen to the show or not. Um, So in this day and age, everybody, you know, identifies himself with some sort of spirited animal and you might identify yourself with, I'm trying to think of a good one for you, Danny, you something funny. Um, and you might identify yourself with um, the mythical um, nymph and you, you know, really in, embrace, you know, running around the forest and, and creating a little bit of havoc. So, if you could be one spirit ingredient either for cocktail or for food, what would that ingredient be and why?
2: Oh my god. Um I was not expecting a question like that. Um
1: first thing that comes to mind is usually the best answer.
2: I don't know why, but I was thinking of shiitake mushroom.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cuz runs around the forest and causes havoc, I don't know.
2: <laughs> no, it uh you know, it it's um it's, it's, it's quiet, but it provides, you know, a lot of flavor and, um, it's subtle, right. Um, it's the base for a lot of different, you know, uh, soups, stocks, you know, um, dishes that, you know, uh, it's kind of just always in the background. Um, and I think that's kind of how I like to be, is you know, hands in many things, but kind of, you know, taking a step back into the background.
1: I like that answer. I do. I like it. It's
0: a base. A base is good.
2: Ooh, got through that one.
0: (laughs) Well, Danny, I want to say thank you so much for spending so much time and enlightening us and giving us ways to contribute to a better tomorrow. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
2: Thank you for having me. Cheers. Cheers.
0: The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.